You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part four in our series on traveler extraordinaire Ibn Battuta. For today's story, I have two notes. First, go to explorerspodcast.com to see a map of the man's travels. And two, a reminder that the dates of Ibn Battuta's travels are kind of wonky. We start in the year 1330 or 1332. We don't know for sure. Also, at the same time, we are going to find some odd, and at times incomprehensible, movements of our explorer. This is all okay. We don't know exactly why some of these things happen, but it could be explained by lapses in Ibn Battuta's memory, or errors by Ibn Juzay, the scribe writing down Ibn Battuta's story. Again, this is fine. Things like this happen with documents written 700 years ago. I'll note these oddities along the way, but in the end, it really doesn't affect the main narrative of our tale. Okay, that is it for notes. Let us go to Mecca in the fall of 1330 or 1332. Ibn Battuta had completed his third Hajj. He was in his late 20s, no longer an inexperienced kid. And he wasn't interested in heading home to Morocco. The wanderlust we spoke of in the last episode had not yet released its grip on the man. He was raring to go exploring again. But where to now? Well, while in Mecca, word reached Ibn Battuta about the Sultan of Delhi, who was hiring learned scholars to help administer his lands. The Sultan, Muhammad bin Tughlaq, was reportedly the richest man in the Muslim world. And what cooler place to go than India, which was in the far-flung reaches of civilization? And so Ibn Battuta departed Mecca, aiming for Jeddah on the Red Sea. The easiest and fastest route to India was to go to Aden and sail along the coast of the Arabian Sea for a couple of thousand miles. It was a dangerous journey as storms and pirates were common and deadly, but the other options were much longer and offered even more perilous challenges. But Ibn Battuta had one major issue. He needed help with such an endeavor. He needed a Rafiq, a trusted friend and guide, to help him get to India and be formally introduced into the Sultan's court. Important note, Ibn Battuta did not speak Persian at this time. His Arabic was helpful, especially among scholars and officials, but that would not be enough if he was on his own. He needed someone to guide him geographically through the region, culturally amongst the Indian people, and then politically once at the court of the Sultan in Delhi. He needed someone to introduce him to the right people. He couldn't just show up and expect to get work without an advocate. Ibn Battuta would spend 40 days in Jeddah trying to find his Rafiq, his advocate. But he had no luck. He simply couldn't find anyone who fit his needs. And so he altered his plans. He wasn't going to give up on India, just approach it in a different way. 
a very different way. Instead of by sea, he would travel north to the area around the Black Sea and then approach India from Central Asia. It was a long circuitous route, but it fit Ibn Battuta's style as he loved to avoid roads already traveled. And so Ibn Battuta crossed the Red Sea and proceeded north into Egypt. He went down the Nile to Cairo, where he rested for a short while. After that, it was west across the Sinai Peninsula. Our explorer's itinerary is vague through this region, but he will eventually trek up the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, reaching Acre, Beirut, and Latakia in modern-day Syria. Now, I want to stop and talk a moment about a man named Al-Haji Abdallah ibn Abu Bakr ibn al-Faran al-Tazari. Al-Tazari was an Egyptian legal scholar, and he became friends with Ibn Battuta, and it would be a long and fruitful association that would last for years. I also want to note that in addition to Al-Tazari, others joined Ibn Battuta's entourage. We rarely get to know the names or numbers of these add-ons, but I think it demonstrates the growing reputation and influence of Ibn Battuta. As we move forward, we can't forget that he was not a kid anymore. He was an incredibly well-traveled young man with a ton of experience. People likely gravitated to him and took him as a de facto leader. Remember, traveling for the sake of adventure was a rare thing in this era. People traveled for a reason. They wanted to make money. They wanted to find work. That sort of thing. Yet here was Ibn Battuta, traipsing around Africa and the Middle East, telling stories of these exotic places to those he encountered. I get this feeling that others were inspired by him and sort of hitched their wagon to his ambition. Anyhow, at Latakia, Ibn Battuta and his companions boarded a Genoese ship bound for Anatolia. Anatolia, by the way, was the term used to cover much of what is modern-day Turkey. It does not represent the western section of Turkey, which includes Constantinople, a.k.a. Istanbul. The western border of Anatolia was the Sea of Marmara and the Dardanelles and Bosphorus Straits. These were the waterways that connected the Mediterranean Sea to the Black Sea. Another note, that Ibn Battuta and his party took a Genoese ship was not uncommon, Aside from simple coastal vessels, Arab shipping in the Mediterranean was weak, having been eliminated by the powerful Italian city-states, plus the French and Spanish. Ibn Battuta would have sailed on a two-masted ship with two or three decks, larger than anything he'd ever been on before. It would have had a crew of upwards of 100 men and 600 tons of cargo. What cargo, we don't know. Perhaps cotton or sugar. The captain of the ship, Ibn Battuta says, treated him and his people honorably and didn't even charge them for the voyage. The plan was to go to Anatolia and then north of the Black Sea through the Khanate of Kipchak, also known as the Golden Horde. After that, it was into Afghanistan and then India. This route was far more difficult and time-consuming than taking a ship from Aden. But what's the old saying say? It's not the destination, but the journey. That seems to be Ibn Battuta's motto. Ibn Battuta would reach the port of Alanya on the southern coast of Turkey, just north of Cyprus, in the last weeks of 1330 or 1332. The port was an important one. There were high walls and an impressive fort, the latter more than 800 feet or 250 meters above the sea. In the city, Ibn Battuta met the local judge, the Qadi, and then rode out to greet the governor at his residence. It was the usual interview, where have you been, what have you seen, that sort of thing. The governor gave Ibn Battuta some coins and wished him well. A few notes. First, while Anatolia was dominated by the Muslim faith, the people were mostly Turkish, Ibn Battuta dealt with the Turks in the past, but they were never the majority of the population. And while many Turkish scholars knew Arabic, such people were not commonplace outside the major cities. This means he will need help translating with much of the populace. Second, while the people here were Turks, there was a strong Persian influence on the region. This was due to the many Persians who had fled from the Mongols some 70 years earlier. 
Third, the area of Anatolia had previously been part of the Byzantine Empire, a.k.a. the Eastern Roman Empire. The once powerful realm of Byzantium was now just a shadow of its former self. In Ibn Battuta's time, the empire roughly consisted of western parts of Turkey, including Constantinople and Greece. In reality, it was a minor power in the region. By the way, Christianity was still fairly common in Anatolia, but it was slowly but surely being replaced by Islam. The ruler of Anatolia was Orhan, who had come to power less than a decade earlier. He was the second bey, which means ruler or chieftain, of what we now know as the Ottoman Empire. Regarding Orhan, Ibn Battuta said, quote, The Sultan is the greatest of the kings of the Turkmen, and the richest in wealth, lands, and military forces. Of fortresses, he possesses nearly a hundred, and for most of the time, he is continually engaged in making a round of them, staying in each fortress for some days to put it in good order and examine its condition. It is said that he never stayed for a whole month in any one town. He also fights with the infidels continually and keeps them under siege. End quote. Orhan was one of the key figures in the creation, consolidation, and expansion of the fledgling Ottoman state. Fourth note. While in Alanya, Ibn Battuta was met by a man at the local madrasa, or college. The man was a cobbler, and he introduced our traveler to a very important organization in Anatolia, the Fityan Association. The Fityan Association was a popular organization in Anatolia in the 13th and 14th centuries. It consisted of young artisans who specialized in welcoming Muslim travelers to their communities. In this instance, the man invited Ibn Battuta to the organization's hospice, a fine building with large, beautiful rugs. There was a banquet featuring fruit, sweetmeats, singing, and dancing. The Fityan Association had a semi-religious element, but it was mostly a social club of sorts that sought to promote nobility, loyalty, courage, and honesty. They provided solidarity and safety and structure in urban environments. Ibn Battuta was astonished by the organization's generosity and civic idealism. He would stay in their hospices in more than 25 towns. It will mean that he will safely be able to travel throughout Anatolia and have a network of learned men to introduce him to each community's most important religious and political leaders. This was the exact thing the Fityan Association was aiming to do. From Alanya, Ibn Battuta and his companions headed inland to the town of Agadir in the summer of 1331 or 1333, where he spent Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. Ramadan is observed by Muslims as a month of fasting, prayer, reflection, and community. Now, at this point, Ibn Battuta's chronicles get confusing, even implausible. At one point, the narrative jumps 700 miles to the west. It's not known why things get all jumbled, but they do. I won't dwell on it, only saying that he visited a variety of inland towns, including Milas, Konya, and Iznik. He called another city, Bursa, which is not far from the scene of Marmara, quote, a great and important city with fine bazaars and wide streets, surrounded on all sides with gardens and running springs, end quote. In these cities, he stayed with prominent men or in the hospices of the Fityan Association. Sometimes there was more than one of the latter in a city, and they would compete with each other to host Ibn Battuta and his party. And it was not just the Fityan Association which was vying for the attentions of our explorer. In every city he visited, he found himself before sheikhs, princes, and governors. People wanted him to tell stories of the far-off lands and the amazing sights that he had seen. And that's because, as I have noted earlier, Ibn Battuta had developed a bit of a reputation. He was well-traveled, having gone on three hajjas. And in Turkey, a scholar of Islamic law was held in high regard. In fact, Ibn Battuta would insert himself in local affairs as a qadi, a judge. And as we know, he knew how to present himself to others. 
He was probably one of those people who just seemed important. He had an aura to him. Because of this, Ibn Battuta found his prestige and his money pouch growing. Everywhere he went, there were gifts for the charismatic young man. In the city of Aiden, the local governor had 20 Greek slaves at the entrance of the palace. He would give one to Ibn Battuta as a gift. The governor of the city of Izmir would give him another one. To further illustrate Ibn Battuta's growing wealth, he reports buying a Greek slave girl while in Ephesus on the western coast of Turkey. He bought another girl not long after that. He was putting together a large collection of horses, slaves, concubines, clothing, and other goods. Now, I want to note that I've thrown out a lot of names of places, but I want to get too caught up in these. While the order these places were visited is jumbled in Ibn Battuta's writings, we can probably look at things logically and say he, roughly, followed the coast of Anatolia, from the south to the west to the north, going inland at times, other times to the sea. In all, he would visit more than 25 cities. And we can't forget about his retinue. Ibn Battuta doesn't often talk about his companions, but at one point, in Iznik, he notes that he had three friends with him, including Al-Tazuri, plus two slave boys and one slave girl. And so, with his entourage, Ibn Battuta went to the north coast of Anatolia, which borders the Black Sea, eventually reaching the port of Sinope. Now it was time for Ibn Battuta to exit the lands of the Ottoman Empire. His plan was to sail across the Black Sea to Crimea. There awaited the realm of another offshoot of the Mongol Empire, the Golden Horde. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ibn Battuta spent six weeks in Sinope before departing for the Crimea. It was early spring of 1332 or 1334. The voyage across the Black Sea was at least 170 miles, or 275 kilometers. As a note, Ibn Battuta still had India on his mind. He could have gone in a different direction, southeast, and headed for Tabriz, a city he had been to years earlier. This would have taken him overland through rugged mountains for hundreds of miles. From there, he would have gone south to the Red Sea and caught a series of boats to India. But Ibn Battuta elected to go north because, well, why not? He had never been there before. 
Once ready to sail, Ibn Battuta, Al-Tazuri, and the rest of their companions sat idle in Sinope for 11 days, waiting for favorable winds. When they finally got going, they were thrown around so badly, everyone thought they were going to die. The ship almost returned to Sinope, but would push through and eventually cross the Black Sea and reach the Crimean Peninsula. This was the land of the Golden Horde, or the Kipchak Khanate. It had been formed after the death of Genghis Khan more than a century earlier, and the breakup of his empire. Now, a quick sidetrack about the Golden Horde name. When we hear the term Golden Horde, it evokes these images of roving bands of horsemen sweeping across the plains, but that's not entirely true. Horde comes from the Mongol word Ordo, meaning camp. The golden part refers to the Khan's opulent field headquarters, hence the Golden Horde. So there you go. I hope we all learned something. I know I did. Sidetrack done. So, the Golden Horde was at the peak of its military might at the time of Ibn Battuta. The empire extended from Siberia and Central Asia to parts of Eastern Europe, from the Urals to the Danube in the west, and from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea in the south. It bordered the Caucasus Mountains and the territories of two other Mongol dynasties, the Ilkhanate to the south and the Shagutai Khanate to the southwest. The ruler of the Golden Horde was Uzbek Khan. Ibn Battuta and his ship would arrive at the port of Kaffa in the eastern part of the Crimea. Kaffa is today known as Fedosia, which had been called Fedosia when it was a Greek colony. When Ibn Battuta arrived, it was the chief port of Genoese merchants in the Black Sea, who were at war with the Venetians for dominance of the region's important trade routes with the east. The Italian city-states had invaded the Black Sea area in the 13th century. The Golden Horde tolerated these Italian colonies because it was Venice and Genoa and others who moved all the trade to Europe. Plus, the navies of the Italian city-states were unparalleled in power in the Black Sea. No point in messing around with a system that worked well for all the powers involved. Ibn Battuta was impressed by Kaffa, saying, quote, We went down to its port, where we saw a wonderful harbor with about 200 vessels in it, both ships of war and trading vessels, small and large, for it is one of the world's celebrated ports. End quote. The city was a key link in the trade route from China to Europe. The goods on display would have been astounding. From the east, there would have been silk, jewels, spices, precious metals, and porcelain. From the steppe, which is the flat, unforested grasslands of southeastern Europe and Siberia, there was grain. From the north, there were furs and timber. And, of course, there were slaves. Kaffa was the most Latinized of the Black Sea ports. In addition to the locals, Ibn Battuta would have seen Turkish soldiers, Russian traders, Egyptian slavers, and Italian merchants. He would have heard a hundred different languages. Ibn Battuta and his companions would find lodging at the local mosque for the night, but he would be astonished when he heard the bells of the local Orthodox churches. He had never spent a night in a place with a Christian population and had never heard the bells of a church. He said that when he heard them, he became alarmed and rushed to the top of the minaret and began chanting out the Koran in a call to prayer. The local Qadis, he said, rushed to him to prevent his actions from causing an incident. Was all of this true? Who knows? It smacks of bravado, the bold Muslim rallying his fellow devotees to battle in the face of the infidels. But in the end, it really doesn't matter if it's real or not. I want to remind everyone that Ibn Battuta's book was written for learned Muslim men, and so he takes great pains to set good examples for his readers. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta and his companions would depart from Kaffa after a few days, taking wagons to Al-Karim, the provincial capital. Al-Karim is today known as Stari Krim. There he met with local scholars and stayed at a Sufi hospice. As a note, while there were many Christians in the empire of the Golden Horde, Islam was the official religion and its influence was growing. 
Islamic law now superseded local and Mongol laws. The Khan, however, was tolerant of the Christians, and they were, for the most part, loyal to the empire. Ibn Battuta would continue his journey, going into the interior of the Crimean Peninsula in a clockwise motion, and eventually ending up at the city of Azak, which today is called Azov, at the northern tip of the Sea of Azov. It was there that Ibn Battuta would meet an emir, or general, of the Khan. The man was heading east to rendezvous with Uzbek Khan at his traveling court, his Ordo. This was hundreds of miles through rugged, often hostile lands, complete with an imperial escort, and it was a chance to meet the Khan, who was a direct descendant of the legendary Genghis Khan. Of course, Ibn Battuta was going to accept the invite. He bought three wagons and animals for the journey. By the way, it was the first time Ibn Battuta had used a wagon. It's not something I realized until I read this story, but a wagon as a method of travel was rare in the Islamic world, at least where Ibn Battuta had been. If one traveled in luxury, it was in a camel litter. It took some time for Ibn Battuta to become accustomed to the rhythms and jolts and bumps of the horse or ox-led wagons, but he did note that the wagon could have sides, which offered privacy and a nice place to sleep. And so Ibn Battuta and his entourage headed east. They crossed the grasslands north of the Sea of Azov and into the area between the Black and Caspian Seas. This is called Caucasia. The Caucasus Mountains to the south were the border of the Golden Horde. Ibn Battuta and his friends were considered honored guests and thus treated well by their hosts. They were well fed with meat, macaroni, and fermented mare's milk. Millet beer, a favorite of the Mongols, flowed freely. The destination of the caravan was the city of Majar on the Kuma River, a prominent location on the trade routes in the region. Ibn Battuta said it was, quote, a large town, one of the finest of the cities of the Turks, on a great river, and possessed of gardens and fruits in abundance, end quote. The march there was a wet and muddy one. Ibn Battuta talks about the many rivers, something he never experienced often in the Middle East. From Majar, Ibn Battuta and the caravan headed south. Remember that Khan's court was a moving affair, so it could be just about anywhere. And the caravan would eventually catch up with Uzbek Khan's traveling court at a place called Bishda, which today is called Piitagorst, in the shadows of the Caucasus Mountains. It was the early days of Ramadan in 1332 or 1334. Of the Khan's great camp, he says, quote, We saw a vast city on the move with its inhabitants, with mosques and bazaars in it, the smoke of the kitchens rising in the air, for they cooked while they marched, end quote. The next day he was presented to Uzbek Khan, who sat on a silver-gilded throne in an enormous tent. The Khan's daughter and two sons and other emirs were assembled below the throne. Uzbek's four wives were on either side of him. By the way, Ibn Battuta was surprised at the freedom, respect, and near equality granted to Mongol and Turkish women. They openly and energetically took part in the governing of the realm. He found this shocking. In his homeland, women stayed out of such affairs. Heck, they wouldn't even be seated with the men. If they had advice to give, they provided it behind the scenes, but not in public at court. Ibn Battuta went on to meet all of the Khan's wives, called Khatuns. He described the experience as such, quote, In front of the Khatun are ten to fifteen pages, Greek and Indians, who are dressed in robes of silk gilt, encrusted with jewels, and each of whom carries in his hand a mace of gold or silver, or maybe of wood veneered with them. Behind the Khatun's wagon, there are a hundred more wagons, in each of which there are four slave girls. End quote. He then goes on to say that the Khatun had three hundred more wagons drawn by oxen, horse, and camels. They carried chess, money, robes, furnishing, and food. The opulence was magnificent. 
In his time at the Khan's roving court, Ibn Battuta would dine with the Khan on a number of occasions. Through interpreters, he told Uzbek Khan of his adventures. The Khan gave Ibn Battuta horses, sheep, food, and robes. Ibn Battuta probably stayed with the Khan's camp through Ramadan before heading to Astrakhan, about 80 miles across the North Caspian lowlands on the Volga River. But before we go there, I need to talk about a side venture Ibn Battuta said he went on at this time. And this is a trip to the north, into the heart of Russia, to the city of Bulgar. Bulgar, which is not far from the confluence of the Volga and Kama rivers, was near the northern border of the Golden Horde. Ibn Battuta says that he went north and experienced short nights, and wanted to travel to the snow-covered lands of the darkness, Siberia. He tells tales of mysterious people in the north who traveled on dog sleds and traded furs. Ibn Battuta says that he wasn't a merchant, so he elected not to go any further north than Bulgar. The only problem with the story is that it likely didn't happen. Of all the questionable parts of Ibn Battuta's travels, this excursion into Russia is the one that virtually every scholar agrees did not happen. And how do we know that? Well, this was an 800-mile trip, or 1,300 kilometers. Ibn Battuta said he went north and back during the month of Ramadan. To have accomplished that would have been nearly impossible in that time frame. Plus, the descriptions of the northern excursion are weak. There are no details, no routes, nothing about the people he met or his companions. The likely answer is that Ibn Battuta was using secondhand stories to fill out this part of his narrative. And why do that? Well, the best guess is that when he told his story to Ibn Jusay, he was trying to encompass as much of the Islamic world as possible. Where he said he went in Russia was the northerly extent of the Golden Horde and Islam. He basically didn't want to leave out of his book a large section of the Islamic world. In reality, what is written is probably stories from others who had been north, or even lifted from other earlier writings about the region. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta head to Astrakhan, which is at the northern tip of the Caspian Sea, along with the rest of the Khan's roving camp. Once in Astrakhan, Ibn Battuta was given another incredible opportunity. One of the wives of the Khan, Princess Beylun, was pregnant. She was the daughter of the Byzantine Emperor, Andronicus III, and wanted to return to her home in Constantinople to give birth. The Khan allowed this. Ibn Battuta asked to go along. He was initially refused, as the Khan was concerned for his safety, but after repeated requests, the Khan relented. He gave Ibn Battuta 1,500 dinars, a robe, horses, furs, and other gifts. The expedition of Princess Beylun departed in either late June or early July of 1332 or 1334. It was a massive endeavor. There were 5,000 horsemen, plus the princess's personal troops and servants, which numbered 500. There were 200 slave girls, 400 wagons, 2,000 horses, and 500 oxen and camels. They went across the flat plains of the region, crossing the Don and Dnieper rivers above the Black Sea. Then they turned southward at the estuary of the Danube. Along the way, they would have stripped the countryside of food. The peasants living on the edge of starvation be damned. After 52 days, the expedition reached Yambol in the southeast of modern-day Bulgaria. It was here that the rule of the Golden Horde came to an end. As for Princess Bailun, most of her great company would set up camp here as they could go no further. She would continue with her personal guard and entourage, including Ibn Battuta. He was now entering, for the first time ever, the Christian world. Three weeks later, the caravan arrived in Constantinople, the capital of Byzantium. Byzantium had once been a great empire, but in Ibn Battuta's time, it was a minor Greek state. The Italians had seized the international trade, and the Turks had taken the lands to the east. Byzantium may have looked impressive and had a sparkling resume, but it was a weak and fading entity. 
However, Ibn Battuta doesn't see these cracks. He is wowed by the city and its churches and monasteries and markets and rich history. He would meet the Byzantine emperor, Andronicus III, who asked Ibn Battuta, through an interpreter, about the Christian shrines in the Holy Land. The emperor gave Ibn Battuta a fine robe. Otherwise, Ibn Battuta stayed in Constantinople for about a month, visiting the many sites in and around the city. He even met with Christian priests. As a note, Ibn Battuta's exposure to Christianity and his followers does not mellow him regarding his rigid views of religion. He doesn't find much sympathy for non-Muslims, calling them infidels, amongst other things. Princess Beolun would elect to stay in the city with her father, allowing her followers and escort to return to Ostrakhan. Historic records do say that, in time, she returned to her husband's court in the east. And so that puts Ibn Battuta back on the road, departing Constantinople in the autumn of 1332 or 1334. He marched through Thrace and then north to the steppe. There he ran into cold and snow like he had never experienced. He said that he wore three coats, two pairs of trousers, two layers of socks, and bearskin-lined boots. He wore so many clothes that he had to have someone help him onto his horse. The column would reach Ostrakhan in late November to find that Ozbeg Khan had gone up the Volga River, about 225 miles, or 360 kilometers, to the city of Nusaray. This was a city created by the Khan just a few years earlier. Ibn Battuta said it was already massive. He counted 13 mosques and bazaars and markets to handle the Volga trade of grain, furs, timber, and slaves. He gave the Khan an account of his journey to Constantinople, although there is no word about the Khan's reaction to his wife's decision to stay in Byzantium. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta was ready to move on. This long journey had all been a run-up to reaching India, and now he was ready to move towards his goal. Ibn Battuta departed Nusaray in mid-December. He and his companions headed south between the Caspian and Aral Seas, eventually reaching the Amudarya River in the city of Urgench. He found Urgench to be vibrant and alive, vastly different from many of the other cities in the area, which had been savaged by the Mongols and Tartars multiple times in the past century. Of the city of Bukhara, he said, Its mosques, colleges, and bazaars were in ruins. There is no one person in it today who possesses any religious learning or who shows any concern for acquiring it. End quote. He reported that Balk, one of the oldest cities in the Amudarya Valley, was, quote, completely dilapidated and uninhabited, end quote. The Amudarya Valley, by the way, roughly separates modern-day Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Another note, some of these cities had been visited the previous century by another of history's great explorers, Marco Polo. Now, by coming to this region, Ibn Battuta was leaving the realm of the Golden Horde and entering the Khanate of Shagutai, the Khan was Ala al-Din to Marashin. Ibn Battuta would meet the Khan near the city of Samarkand and spend 54 days at his winter camp. He called the Khan, quote, a man of great distinction, end quote, because he, like Uzbek Khan, had made Islam the Khanate's official religion. Tamar Shirin would give Ibn Battuta many gifts, including silver, a sable coat, horses, and camels. By the way, the Khan would see his empire broken up a few months after Ibn Battuta's departure. The Khanate of Shagutai was brought down by an anti-Muslim rebellion of the eastern tribes and was never reunified. No matter, Ibn Battuta was on his way, and he admits that he had become quite wealthy, having more horses than he dares to mention. Also, when he left the Volga region, he had three young female concubines. One would give birth around this time, but the baby died about two months later. Now, after staying with Tamar Shirin, Ibn Battuta reports that he took a long and zigzaggy trip to the west. 
but this leg of the march is full of vague descriptions and contradictory information, and probably did not happen. But if it did, he ended up returning to where he started and continued on. Anyhow, in the summer of 1333 or 1335, it was time to push into India. Ibn Battuta moved into what is present-day Afghanistan and approached the Hindu Kush, which is a mountain range on the western edge of the Himalayas in Central Asia. It is the Great Divide separating Inner Asia from India. There were numerous passes that crossed the mountains, but the best passes changed from year to year and even month to month. This was due to things such as snow, rock slides, and bandits. Of it, Ibn Battuta said, quote, I proceeded to the city of Barwan, in the road to which is a high mountain, covered with snow and exceedingly cold. They call it the Hindu Kush, that is Hindu Slayer, because most of the slaves brought thither from India die on account of the intenseness of the cold. End quote. Ibn Battuta camped near the mountains for a few weeks, grazing his horses and waiting for better weather. Finally, his entire entourage, slaves, friends, camels, and horses, ascended the gorges of the Andarab River Valley and crossed the mountains at an altitude of 13,000 feet, or 4,000 meters. He said, quote, We crossed the mountain setting at about the end of the night and traveling on it all day long until sunset. We kept spreading felt cloths in front of the camels for them to tread on so that they would not sink in the snow. End quote. Ibn Battuta descended into the Panjshir Valley and onto the Kabul Plain, where most of the mountain trails converged. There he joined a company of merchants driving 4,000 horses to market in India. He then crossed the Suleiman Mountains by the main route through the Khyber Pass. On September 12, 1333, or 1335, he reached the Indus River in modern-day Pakistan. The mountains were behind him. Delhi was now about 500 miles, or 800 kilometers, away. And it is here that we will leave Ibn Battuta. Next time, he will enter the Sultanate of Delhi. Only this time, he will not be going to explore. He will be going in search of work. The Sultan was supposedly the richest Muslim in the world, and he was looking for learned scholars, such as Ibn Battuta, to help him administer his realm. Of course, that doesn't mean that Ibn Battuta won't be up for some exploring. So, that is it for today. I hope you've been enjoying this tale of one of history's great travelers, Ibn Battuta. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows. A couple of great history shows that delve into more non-traditional Western topics include the history of China and the history of Egypt. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.